to another episode of Sacred Cinema here on 2XX 98.3 FM. I'm your host, Jimmy Bernasconi, for the next half hour. And on today's show, we are going to be chatting with American director Terry Zwagoff. Yes, fans of the show would know that we are very big fans of Mr. Zwagoff's work here at Sacred Cinema. Uh, I believe it was it was actually last week that we we it was only last week that we chatted about Ghost World, uh, his film from two thousand and one. Uh, and I'm a personal, uh, I mean, I love <laughs> Bad Santa. I've seen I've mentioned on the show that we did uh, on Bad Santa. It was the the Christmas special uh, last year. Uh, how many times I've seen that movie and how funny I think it is. So um, it was very cool for me to meet. Uh, Mr. Zweigoff, uh during during the interview that we're going to hear in just a few moments. Uh, if you're not particularly familiar with his body of work, I think he's quite an interesting director in that, that there's some really clear themes and motifs that run throughout most, if not all, of his films. Um, if we if we start off with his debut feature, um, Louis Bluey, which follows the um, uh, I guess it, it tells the story of it's it's a documentary, but it tells sort of the story of of Howard Louis Louis Armstrong, who was a uh, country blues musician, but also um, a bit of a cartoonist. Um, that sort of lifts up, or this sort of introduces us to uh, Mr. Zweigoff's um, interest in sort of old music and also sort of uh, cartoons and visual art as well. And then he sort of follows that on uh, in his next film, Crumb, from um, 19, uh, 1994. And this, this is another documentary. This one follows the, the you know, the, the the story of Robert Crumb, who was another cartoonist, uh, very prominent uh, cartoonist, who uh, Terry Zwagoff met in um, in the seventies, and they had they you know, sort of knew each other for quite a long time. Um, so we're still carrying on these ideas of, uh, and, and uh, sorry, and also so Robert Crumb also did have an interest in sort of old music and things like that. So we're sort of carrying carrying a lot of these interests um, in in old in, in cartoons and, and visual art and, and old music. And then if for anyone that's seen Ghost World. And we did obviously talked about it last week. There's a lot of those elements in that film as well. Steve Buscemi's character is a collector of old records and has a great appreciation for old music and things like that. And of course, uh, Thora Birch's character in that film uh, is off to art school and she's dealing with a pretentious teacher or a teacher that isn't really exactly sure about what she's all about and or understanding art and, and what Thora Birch's art is actually about. And there's a lot of double guessing and second guessing and, and that sort of thing around the, the concept of, you know, very avant-garde, very profound and abstract art. And then we move on to Bad Santa, which I, I suppose maybe, maybe the film of his that maybe is the most unique, uh, but I still think we have, you know, there's a lot of references to old music in the film. It uses a lot of old music and we do chat about that a little bit in, in today's interview, uh, the use of classical music and things like that. And, and then the, importance of music and how important that is in, in shaping a mood and things like that um and and, and i suppose that that also has elements of of of, of you know corporate american of or corporatism in america uh, which is something that that in the interview sort of terry does sort of hint at i suppose in in terms of the fact that there isn't very much uh quality art in the sort of in the modern day uh, in his view um which, which obviously contrasts you know, the use of a lot of old music and, and 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 art from from years gone by and then of course with our school of confidential we're returning and going into a great sort of depth of around um what is art what are the limits of art and what's the purposes of art so um i would i would suggest going through his body of work for, you know depending on what country and what you can access but um really interesting to just go through it from really start to finish and see sort of 
how those ideas get developed uh, and, and explored in different ways in each of those films. But before, without any further delay, here is our interview with Terry Zwagoff. Well, thank you so much, Terry, for joining us uh, on today's program. Uh, as I, I've mentioned this in a couple of episodes prior, I mean, last week, I think we, was, it was last week's episode, we talked about Ghost World and we're chatting about sort of uh, how, big, how big an impact you've definitely had on, on sort of my interest in cinema and things like that. So it's, it's honestly such an honor to have you on the show. Thanks so much for joining us today. Oh, it's nice of you to say thank you. Oh, that's great. Um, I think we might start off with just maybe better familiarizing our listenership with with some of your work. I mean, you uh, became an, a filmmaker sort of through an interesting set of circumstances. Um, obviously, uh, you know, you had a, quite an interest in um, the work of, of Howard Armstrong and that sort of turned and you sort of went after an interview with him and that, and that turned into a film. Do you mind just chatting through uh, what happened there and what got you started in the filmmaking industry? Um, sure. I was a, a record collector, collected 78s of old blues and country and jazz records, mostly from the 20s. And had stumbled on this record that was credited to a musician whose name was clearly a pseudonym and it said on the label, Louie Bluey. And uh, the record just knocked me out. I thought it was incredible. And uh, on the record, he's playing mandolin with a guitar player backing him up, whose name on the label is Ted Bogan, which is his real name. And I, being a mandolin player myself, set out to learn the tune. And as I tried to learn it, I, my admiration for it grew. It was very subtle what was so good about it. And um, eventually I got sort of obsessive about it and wanted to meet the guy and do an interview with him. But I realized, oh, he's probably dead. This is like 50 years ago, you know. But I did some detective work, found Ted Bogan, asked him who this guy Louie Bluey was. Ted Bogan was in Chicago at the time. I was in California. And he said, uh, oh, he lives in Detroit. And I got in touch with, uh, and he said his real name's Howard Armstrong. And mm-hmm. and I got in touch with him and I said, uh, talked to him a little bit on the phone, told him how big a fan I was and, and interested in old blues and that record in particular really impressed me. And, and I wondered if I could, uh, if I was ever in his neck of the woods, could come by and, and talk to him. And he said, sure, bring 50 bucks when you come. <laughs> so I find myself about six months later in Detroit. I made a special trip out there with the tape recorder to sit him down and sort of do an oral history of his, of his life and his memories of music. And since he'd never drank or abused drugs in his life, unlike a lot of blues musicians, he had a very keen memory, even though he was like 76 years old. And uh, I thought he's a fantastic, interesting person, an incredibly talented, could still play music, really great, was a visual artist as well. And, and I thought uh, he's so funny in real life that just, um, I was originally going to possibly just do a little magazine article about him for mm-hmm. a, a thing in London that I contributed to occasionally, old time music. Uh, it's like basically a circulation of 500 people of record collectors, but I thought he deserved more and uh, eventually led to me doing this documentary film about him. Yeah. Yeah. And I was, uh, ended up calling it Louie Bluey. Yeah. It's, I think one of the most interesting things about your body of work is that you have such a curiosity uh, about so many different art forms and so many different mediums. Uh, I mean, it's, it, you obviously uh, have made a lot of films, but you've, you've gone from documentary to fictitious films, and within a lot of films you've explored music and, and old music in particular, um, particularly in obviously Louis Blue. The, the film, the film uh, road was not a particularly auspicious one for mm. me. I, 
the first film I ever saw, I was five years old yeah. in a theater. And my, my father took me to see a film called um, Invaders from Mars, 1953. We're living in Chicago. And it's about a kid who's like, I don't know, he's like 10 years old or something. And he he comes to suspect that these strange aliens who land in a flying saucer behind its house are taking over the minds of adults. <laughs> and the, the way that you can tell if their minds are taken over, it's somewhat like Invasion of the Body Snatchers. Yeah. But in this case, they become a little bit more cold and ill-tempered. Yeah. And my father was always very cold and ill-tempered. So the, the film was very effective on me. About halfway through, I was getting really paranoid. My father, maybe he's one of these aliens. And uh, <laughs> at that point, I, I had to go to the bathroom. And I told my father I had to pee. And he said, OK, I'll take you to the, to the men's room. I said, it's all right. You know, I'll go on my own. Just point me. Where do I go? Tell me where to go. And uh, he said, just walk to the back of the theater and there's some stairs out there and you go up to the top of the stairs and there's a, and there's a door there. There's the men's room. I said, okay, I'll be back. So I go up these stairs and I see two doors and I see one that's lit up in color and red and one that's not. And I figure, well, the one in red must be the one that's open because it's lit up. So I push the door to that fire alarm, <laughs> emergency exit only. They stop the projector. Oh alarms ring people file out of the <laughs> cinema the cops show up yeah. my father's looking on eventually he comes out he's mm -hmm. looking at me in complete disgust and disappointment that was my first film going experience mm -hmm. which i i i you know I, i'm always tickled to read of other filmmakers because they always speak of the magic and awe <laughs> cinema you know the complete opposite for me so i had no natural inclination to go in that direction i never took a film mm -hmm. class in in college there weren't any offered when i went to college yeah. not at the university of wisconsin anyway yeah and and of course i mean music has been a big part of your life not only as a as a listener but as a performer as well do you still play a lot of music yeah today? i play in, in a couple different not really i play with friends at this yeah. point we don't perform i don't like to perform yeah i have with uh robert crumb's band in the past he had a mm. band called the cheap suit serenaders mm. and a few others but i don't know music to me is is was always the way into everything was really literally like i just my way into my first film but it continues to be the main thing of interest to me in, in making a film you know yeah. like i can i can usually tell I shouldn't say I can usually tell if a film's good or bad. I can usually tell if I'm going to like a film mm -hmm. within the first 10 seconds of it coming on, yeah. just from the music. Because yeah. uh, good directors, great directors are always good with music. I don't care if they're Hitchcock or Orson Welles or Chaplin or David Lynch or Scorsese or Coppola. They're all good with music. And you can just tell when you hear some crappy piece of, you know, bad music whether it's score or pop music or something you know sometimes that can work if the picture's right if it complements the picture but oftentimes it's sort of thrown up there and it's for they choose it for the words instead of the actual mood of it and yeah. I, I don't know films like music are about emotions and feelings to me and that's what films are to me you know it's like my natural inclination when I start a film is to find the music. And if I can find the music, the rest falls into place. And if I can't, I'm in big trouble and it's really difficult. Mm. And I've had a lot of luck with that in most of my films. And one of them, that film Art School Confidential, mm. um, 
another film I did with the guy who did Ghost World, Dan Klaus. I just couldn't find the music that worked for it. Yeah. It was too the the way it was it was directed and written. It was too playful with the genres to fit the music. I don't know. I had trouble, and uh, but I've, I've sort of come to find that that's you know the most important factor. If I can get that together, then things go pretty smoothly. But the the first time it really hit me was was seeing the film Dr. Strangelove yeah. of just how powerful music could be in a film. Cause of course, you know, there's Kubrick and there's everybody else and he's probably the best at, as both filmmaker and at use of music, in my opinion. And at the, my parents took me to see Dr. Strangelove 1962 also in a theater in Chicago, which is weird because they rarely took me to a film, maybe five films in my life, yeah. but that was one of them. And I was about 14 at the time. And I just loved the film. I just couldn't believe how transgressive it was. And I just thought, wow, you can get away with being this subversive. And, you know, I probably didn't know the meaning of the word transgressive or subversive at the time, but I felt it, you know, I just felt like, how oh, is this really pushing things into this uncomfortable territory that is just so different than the crap you, you see in most media, you know, on TV or whatever in your real life and life magazine, whatever. It's, it's finally that some sense of truth, you know, and at the end of that film, when the atom bombs are going off to that music, you know, we'll meet again. I just thought, <laughs> God, this is like so hauntingly beautiful and hilarious at the same time. And I just, you know, I just thought that was something that I wanted to try to do. Yeah. It's and interesting because, anyway. yeah, it's interesting because, um, I, I mean, I've, I think there's a quote from um, Australian Australian film director Peter Weir. He talks about that as well when he writes a film. He'll start with a song as well, and that'll sort of get him in the mood and the space of the, what can then inspire uh, what comes yeah, we after. We had a that. lot of trouble with Bad Santa and finding the music. At oh, first. that's so interesting. Like, I didn't have it in, yeah, I didn't have it in my mind because I was so busy with a million other nightmares on that film. But my the editor who uh, had largely edited Ghost World, this guy Robert Hoffman, who's really great, said, uh, "So I'm piecing together the dailies. I want to put some music behind them. What do you think?" we should look, I should look for, for music. I said, boy, I don't know. Just try something on your own, put it up there and I'll look at it. And he started putting up different stuff and none of it worked. And I eventually said, well, for some reason I have this instinct that it should be recognizable music. I don't know if that means, you know, I mean, I don't mean like popular music like the Beatles, but you know, maybe light classical or something. There was a film, um, Bad News Bears where Michael Ritchie, the director used Carmen and uh, I said, so put up Carmen and see if that even works with this. And he put that up and it was just like suddenly the whole film worked. Yeah. And I said, well, I don't want to steal Carmen. That's this guy's <laughs> idea. But we did steal a lot of it. And uh, but we then that sort of led us to other uh, recognizable pieces of music. And by the time we were done with the film, I went back and I realized every needle drop that I picked in that film Stanley Kubrick had used in a film, <laughs> almost all of them. Yeah. It was scary. I thought, oh my God, I got to take all these out. And then I thought, oh, nobody will even know. I didn't barely know at first because they're so recognizable. They're used in many things. Yeah. 
Yeah, I mean, that's that's so interesting that you said you had so much trouble with it because I think one of the features of Pantsan, or at least one of the things I appreciate about it so much is, you know, there's so many callbacks to such great composers and, and people over the year. It obviously starts off with the Chopin at the beginning and then you've got Shostakovich later on. Like the Chopin, they thought it was too melancholy. Oh, you've got to be They replaced kidding. it at one point for a test audience with Alvin and the Chipmunks doing Jingle uh, Yeah, some kind of Christmas thing. And at thing. that point, I quit the film for yeah. a while yeah they got me back yeah no they were awful i feel like that's that's one of the nocturnes right the show part of the beginning yes. of that, that's nocturne i feel like it's a perfect uh beginning it has that sort of sort of ghostly haunting but there's almost like a humoristic like element to it yeah. as well it's sort a, of work for some for whatever reason you never know quite know why you know? that's really that, that, sort that, of a minor miracle when it does there was a scene in that film where tony cox who plays uh uh, Willie's uh, yeah, Marcus. Marcus, he yeah. plays Marcus. He's trying to chop down with a golf club this mannequin so he can get to this fur coat she's wearing, and then we're intercutting with that. And Willie's like Billy Bob Thornton has a sledgehammer and he's trying to hammer his way into a safe. And nothing worked to make it funny until we finally stumbled on the Anvil Chorus, which I just heard my entire life as a kid in cartoons. You know, yeah, that works but, perfectly. You know, it worked. And suddenly the, that scene came together before that was sort of marginally interesting. It didn't really work. Yeah, it's weird. Weird how much power music has in films. And most, I think a lot of directors don't really take advantage of it. Yeah. And I, an underused element of, of, I mean, it's an audio visual medium, isn't it? So you have the power of both music and you have sound right. and, and the visual elements. And when they it. work together, it's very strong. Could you say that that's sort of one of the things that has underscored a lot of your work, which is that you clearly have a great appreciation for, as we've discussed, the music, but also visual art. Uh, that's definitely something covered in Louis Bluey and Crumb and, and cartoonography and things like that. Is that yeah, very interested in very interested in both, fair to say. But, you know, I have to say that music even I think of acting as very musical as mm, well. Okay. You know, the best way I can explain it is. Oh, I don't know. Did you ever see any W.C. Fields films? No, I haven't. Uh, I'm not that aware. He's a comedian in the 30s, and he made what I think is the funniest film ever made, 1931. It's a gift. And there's this woman who plays his long-suffering wife in this film, and in a number of his films. And her name was Kathleen Howard. Mm -hmm. She started out as an opera singer before she became an actor, mm -hmm. but he had a sense that she would be good as his wife, and hired her to, to act in the film as his as his wife and she she has this control of her voice in this very funny musical way where she just has endless variations almost like a jazz soloist and how she dreams up to deliver a line mm -hmm. and so she has this control of intervals and she has this control of timber and she has this control of rhythm and so she comes up with these ways to torture her husband instead of just this one note anger of scolding him, she sort of plays with him mm. in this musical way with the way she delivers her line. It's so funny. And it, it, it seems somewhat effortless to her, like Louis Armstrong playing trumpet or something. It just seems miraculous and effortless, but it's so effective. And acting's a lot like that. It's very musical. I, I, I found that a lot of actors I've worked with her have, have can, they can all sing for the most part, a lot of them play instruments. Um, they just have a feeling for that. And there's there's a kinship with acting, yeah. with music. It sort of carries over. I find it interesting. 
I mean, part of, I think what comes to mind uh, listening to you speak about that is that, you know, going from documentary to fictional filmmaking, obviously in a documentary you're letting the subject kind of go along on their own and you're not, obviously it's not scripted, you're not telling them what to so do. So you think. You'd be surprised <laughs> how scripted it sometimes is in my films. Uh, I'm interested to know I'm a very that. controlling no. person. <laughs> I, 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 I fudge a lot of stuff with documentaries. They're not quite as, you know, when I first had the idea to do this Louis Bluey film. My idea was just let the camera run. Just like Rob, let like Frederick Wiseman makes films, used to make films as American documentary filmmaker, really, really good. He just, you know, he'd burn through a hundred hours of film a day or whatever a week. And I didn't have that kind of money. So I had to sort of stage things and manipulate things to happen. Really? You know, they were often true things that I had seen happen before, but they weren't going to happen unless I sort of nudged it in that direction. Oh, and sometimes really I did a little bit more than that that I want that I'm comfortable even talking about now. But I wanted this control. I, I loved what I liked about film that I discovered once I had a film in a theater was that I'm forcing all these people to sit in this theater in the dark and look at this one spot in front of them and not be distracted. Most people are really distracted, even today, worse than ever with phones and social media, whatever. And um, just to force them to focus on something that you want them to see and take it in and to control them. That really appealed to me, that control. And so I, I think I eventually moved actually to features because of that more than anything else. I, I still love documentaries, but features, you can actually get actors and tell them what to do. You can't do that as easily with documentaries. I mean, with the Crumb documentary, I oftentimes would ask Robert Crumb to repeat a line or say i heard you say this you know last week could you start by talking about this and you know they're not they're basically actors playing themselves and you're trying to uh, manipulate them but some are better at it than others so if you get a real actor you can do miraculous things it's incredible oh, i see that's that's interesting did you find that with robert crumb being your subject uh, in crumb and then obviously you you knew him quite well at the time of filming uh, as opposed to um, in Louis Bluey. Did you find that that was a significant difference in, in making both of those films? Having, having It was a significant help, but it was also a hindrance in making Crumb because Robert was very aware that I knew certain things that I wanted to ask for the benefit yeah. of the audience. Yeah. And whenever I would ask them on camera off screen, he would just sort of make fun of me okay. like because he knew i knew the answer like oh, and he wouldn't cooperate oftentimes but you know, eventually you could get him to it took a lot of you know fussing around to get him to come but he, he was always very as an artist he's always very interested in the in the truth getting to the core of things and yeah. uh i think that was very important to him to not play along with anything that could be conceived as false so he wanted to make sure that i was honest with the audience well, that seems that seems like it makes sense given you know the way that he the way that he drew. I mean, he was someone that didn't really have a filter on what he did, and he was sort of an unapologetic right. artist. Um, that was definitely something I was interested in, in chatting with you about is uh, his approach to art and and so much of what that film explores are you know the boundaries of art's purpose and and sort of um, you know what its role is and, and the degree to which it should be somewhat crude or perverse or sexual. Um, do, do you think that that's something that has changed over the last couple of decades since you made the film? Do you think that art today has become more sanitized or less sanitized and whether that's a good or a bad thing? I haven't seen any good art. 
I haven't seen any good art in years. The last good art I saw was Matisse and Picasso, besides Crumb and a few others. <laughs> ever, there's a lot of slop out there masquerading as art. You know that that film critic from Time Magazine who's in the Crumb film, Robert Hughes. Yes, yes, yes. Now passed on, I think. But um, I took him aside at one point. We were I, we got invited to dinner, and he extended the invitation to me at some very wealthy woman's house, like a billionaire, yeah. and she had a lot of art on the walls. And yeah. I said, "What is what is with this on the wall over here? It's just like a black square." He said that she paid $4.5 million <laughs> for that. I said, oh, wouldn't you advise her against it as a friend of hers? He says, ah, she can afford it. Yeah. But I said, it's just complete bullshit. Said, of course I see it. I said, but you're the art critic for Time Magazine. You know, he says, well, you know, we got to make a living. <laughs> I got to say, there's some shots taken in, especially uh, Art School Confidential, but in Ghost World as well, especially in those, in those art class scenes as well, and, and questioning sort of the pretentiousness of a lot of those characters is definitely a breath of fresh air. Um, and I think it's potentially something that we are um, uh, guilty of doing on this show as well. Is it something that has been a personal um, issue with you dealing with sort of pretentiousness in the art world, or not necessarily pretentiousness, but people sort of dressing things up as quality when they're not yeah i like to try to you know poke holes in it make it more transparent how obvious the lies are you know that sort of stuff really sort of irks me but not so much anymore it was very therapeutic for me making films i got a lot of that anger out of my system you know it was frustrating like nobody understands but me i've got to get this across but of course many people do understand without my help fair enough do you what do you think it might account for that just that that shift that you said that you haven't seen anything good since Picasso Matisse. Um, why do you think know. that has been? Because obviously you're so you've got a great appreciation for old stuff. A lot of films of the 40s and 50s and music of the 20s and things like that. Well, what what do you think changed? Um, sort of post 50s. I don't thing? know, but I can tell you a story that amuses me. Um, Crumb, the film opened at the Film Forum Theater in New York City. 1994 and the woman who ran it who i think still runs it is karen cooper very very sharp smart woman likable person and uh i kept bugging her to use some of the great um blurbs i was getting in reviews and she said no no you want people to discover the film on the on their own they won't they want to be told it's good they want to sort of then see it get excited tell their friends so the best advertisement for your film is there's a line around the block every night has been sold out for weeks you know and, and those people see that line and then they want to see it yeah. they think they're missing something so i said okay well i would check in with her every week to see how the box office was doing and she said sold out sold out sold out i said well can you put it on, on your other two screens as well before <laughs> she said, no no this we keep the line around the block you know so you know who came to see your film who bought a ticket five times in the last like month or something? I said, no, who? She said, I thought she said Juan Miro, the Spanish sculptor, painter from the, I don't know, I guess he goes back to the 30s. Mm-hmm. Um, but she was actually saying Jean Miro, the French actress, oh. right? One of my favorite actresses. And I said, really? Yeah. She came to see the film? She said, yeah, five times. She bought a ticket each time. I said, my God. I'd be thrilled to death to meet her. Yeah. And I actually then, I actually wrote a script giving her a big part that was a script that uh, Johnny Depp had, had uh, yeah. asked me to get involved with. He asked me to write it with this uh, 
other friend of his. It was based on a French novel. And wow. so we wrote a big part for Jean Moreau, but never got made that film. Well, that's all we've got time for this week on Sacred Cinema here on 2XX 98.3 FM. Just want to extend another big thank you to Mr. Terry Zweiger for joining us all the way from San Francisco, USA. It was an absolute pleasure to chat with him. Uh, to you, the listeners, thank you, thank you so much for listening. Uh, but please uh, consider jumping onto the uh, 2XX FM website to consider subscribing to the station or sponsoring the show. That would all be very much appreciated. And we'll see you again very soon.